Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. One of the things I would potentially argue that needs to be considered and often isn't considered is whether there can be regulatory pause or a change in the number of issues and the number of topics that regulators are trying to address, both for the benefit of the authorities, but also firms themselves. Today's guest outlines what she believes a UK government under Prime Minister Liz Truss will really mean for the country's financial services sector. She explains why it's time for the UK's markets watchdog to take a regulatory pause and why a rethink of the FCA's industry levy is needed. She also details what UK lawmakers missed in relation to post-Brexit reform of finance and what city execs can do now to shape the reform agenda. Becca Park is a former lawyer who was previously Director of Corporate Affairs for the trade body UK Finance and a member of the Executive Committee for the European Banking Federation. In 2021, she joined consulting group Global Council, where she has been advising financial services firms on policy and regulation as its Senior Director for the Financial Services Practice since 2022. Hi, Becca. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So let's start with a quick overview of your role. Who do you typically advise and what's topping your to-do list currently? So I spend most of my time working with traditional banks and insurers and asset managers, but also an increasing number of crypto firms and global payments businesses who are often larger than the, many of the traditional banks. And what I focus on is advising them on upcoming political and regulatory risk. So not the detailed compliance that a legal team would worry about, but thinking about the upcoming political agenda and policy agenda and how it might impact their business models, their operations, the way in which they choose to serve businesses and customers. At the moment, it won't surprise you if I say those topics tend to be very focused around the current cost of living crisis, the price of energy, the impact that's going to have not just on the markets, but customers and households, and then the knock-on policy and regulatory expectations that that will set out for banks, lenders and insurers. Yes, it's certainly going to be a very challenging few months ahead, isn't it? What were you expecting from this coming winter? We talk a lot in the policy and political community about the fact that the pandemic changed the expectations of voters. What they expect from government intervention is now a whole scale larger than what we previously traditionally saw. And we're going to see that with the energy packages we're seeing being outlined this autumn in the UK, in the EU, by individual European member states. But I think we saw what big business could do during the pandemic, the way in which they could take proactive action and voluntary actions. And that's going to be the set of expectations that we see being pushed on the sector. It is not a coincidence that the first meeting with 
Chancellor Kwarteng had with the financial services sector had two roles. One, to test market appetite and market interest and confidence in the energy package. But two, to remind them of their role, their obligations, what they could be doing. And that reiterates directly the letter that the Financial Conduct Authority sent back out in the spring to the messages that both John Glenn and Richard Fuller as City Minister set out very clearly to the industry, which is you have a social role here. And ultimately for banking, that comes back to a sense of we bailed you out during the financial crisis. You still have a debt to pay to society. And firms understand these obligations. They understand their responsibilities. It's because they also know that they need to look after their consumers to support on household finances because they've got to meet their regulatory obligations. But there's also a sense that they understand that that's the right long-term decision for the business as well. And you mentioned the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, and I would like to hear your views on him in that role. But before we go there, obviously we're at the early stages of Liz Truss's premiership as well. So what's your view on Liz Truss? Because she has made some positive noises. She said she will empower the city to drive economic growth through tax cuts and regulatory reforms. But she has also promised some more controversial things like scrapping all EU regulation from the UK rulebook, which obviously isn't workable in practice. So what are your views on Liz Truss? So we have just come through what Liz Truss called the world's longest job interview. But I think what we can all agree was a very targeted conversation with 160,000 Conservative Party members. And I have to say, what surprised me most of all about that conversation was the fact that we'd even had financial services being debated and discussed. We had MIFID discussed as part of mainstream broadcast TV political debates. That is unheard of. Normally, any conversation on banking tends to be about bonuses, payout, and then very consumer-focused concerns, which is understandable. So it's really interesting that this issue came up through the campaign in the way that it did. And really, it came up as an example or a talisman of the opportunity for post-Brexit reform. For me, that's what feels like it's going to shape Prime Minister Truss's agenda when it comes to financial services. I don't think we've had this conversation because she's necessarily a huge fan of financial services in the city, but she sees the potential, just as Johnson's senior team did, for some of the reforms in financial services that have not yet happened. That element feels like it's pretty firm and is, and is going to be committed to and delivered through her premiership. And we've already seen that with the continuation of the Financial Services and Markets Bill. And I suppose that's my first point. So much of this agenda is already being executed after a three and a half year regulatory framework review. The Financial Services and Markets Bill does remove a huge amount of the EU onshore rule for financial services and carefully seeks to replace them with UK bespoke measures and designed regimes through a process of secondary instruments and regulation. So that work in financial services is probably far more advanced than in other sectors and is actually underway as a result of this legislation. The more controversial areas are the comments that we never actually had publicly confirmed necessarily were never nailed down as formal policy announcements around reviewing the mandate of the Bank of England or merging the UK regulators, stepping away from Twin Peaks and creating a new regulatory structure. And on the mandate, we've already had clarity. The new Chancellor has been very clear with meetings with the Governor of the Bank of England that not only is he going to reinstigate the weekly meeting, he's obviously not going to review the mandate as well. And there's a sense, I think, of providing that clarity and confidence back to the markets that some things might be discussed during a campaign, but governing is different. And then I think on the, are we going to see major regulatory reform? We may do, but it's not clear that it's possible to execute any of that in two years before the next general election. And I suspect what we're more likely to see, just as we saw with the conversation about whether to break up the Treasury or not, is a realisation that times of economic crisis are not the best moments to do those things. And I suspect we're probably about to see another regulatory framework review packaged up slightly differently, maybe with slightly bolder objectives, slightly broader, more searching questions as to whether the UK has the right regulatory framework 
post-Brexit and reflecting on whether there are stronger changes that can be made. So we've obviously got a new competitiveness mandate coming forward as a secondary objective. I am sure there will be many that use the trust premiership as an opportunity to push that to become a primary objective. Also, we've already had clarity from the regime that the controversial, for some, call-in powers, so the ability of the government to review regulatory powers, will be put back in the Financial Services Bill as part of the scrutiny process. So for me, Big Bang 2.0, which is a term Rishi Sunak used as well, doesn't feel quite like Big Bang 2.0, but maybe a slightly more ambitious continuation of the status quo. And that's in reference to Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's comments that he wants to create Big Bang 2.0 to boost financial services. So you sound very positive about Chancellor Kwarteng and Liz Truss's premiership and the government she's established so far. It's very early days. Everyone is still reserving judgment. But when you come to financial services, it has to be a positive that we have a senior team talking in positive tones about the UK sector. One of the frustrations for banking and financial services has long been a sense that it felt that the UK government was sometimes embarrassed about our leading sector and that there wasn't a sense that it was a jewel in a crown. It would be a bit like Germany being embarrassed about its car manufacturing sector. And so I think there is a sense of relief in the city that at least there is acknowledgement at the value of the jobs, the tax revenue, the benefits to UK GDP that the sector can bring. Now, whether that translates into the right policy decisions and the right regulatory decisions, we'll have to see what happens over the next few months. But the initial determinations around regulatory reform and the bill sound right. And it sounds like you think a lot of the more controversial elements of Liz Truss's campaign were just campaign and that they're not going to become reality anytime soon. That's the big unanswered question. And it feels in the early days like there might be some indications of that. But also, we have to be realistic. So much political time and so much political capital is going to be focused on very retail-focused issues around cost of living and around energy, that some of these other issues will have to take a, a bit of a back seat if government's going to have a credible amount of capacity to focus on what really is dominating voters' minds. And in that context, Kwarteng has recently indicated that he's seeking to scrap the UK's cap on bankers' bonuses, which was introduced after the 2008 financial crash. That seems quite a controversial move, but its intention is to attract more business to the city. What are your views on that? You have to break this out into two separate questions. So there is the policy question of is reducing the bonus cap or removing the bonus cap the right thing to do? And then secondly, the politics question, which is, is it politically feasible to do this and what are the consequences, not just for the government, but I would say for the sector reputationally as well. And I think if you pick the first part of that and the bonus cap itself, firstly, you have to remember the UK was never supportive of the introduction of a bonus cap in the original measures that were implemented at EU level. From day one, particularly the regulatory authorities could always identify that if you cap bonus payments, you limit what can be paid for in performance-related pay. And performance-related pay, from a bank perspective, has the advantage of being subject to clawback or malice provision. So if it looked like a good year for investment activity in the short term, the bonus gets paid. But actually, it's then judged over a three, five-year-plus period as the clawback provisions are put in place and followed. And ultimately, what happened as a result of the bonus cap being introduced, which was anticipated by authorities, was fixed pay for bankers went up in order to make up for the fact that the bonus and the elements of remuneration was limited. And so actually, from a regulatory and a policy perspective, removing the bonus cap and enabling banks to have more of the pay and performance related flexible pay that can have these additional elements put to it is prudentially sound. It makes sense from a conduct perspective and from a prudential soundness perspective. So actually, you can see why a chancellor that has said he's committed to doing things differently and actually challenging some of the policy measures that have challenged UK competitiveness and growth 
the cap makes sense. I think the question I would ask is, is this really what is top of the list for banks and for international wholesale firms operating in the UK? I would countenance that perhaps not. And although quite a totemic symbol to give them, I suspect there's many more in the banking sector that are keen to understand what the government's going to do around the corporation tax surcharge, particularly as the government gets ready to lower the corporation tax increase that had been planned. Are they also going to look at the corporation tax surcharge? This government said it's against windfall taxes, and ultimately, at its heart, the corporation tax surcharge is a windfall tax. I think if you come to the second part of the question, which is the politics of it, politically, it's not just difficult for the government, it's difficult for the banking sector. The sector knows post-financial crisis, it has struggled with its reputation. And there's a reason that was a Harry Enfield sketch back in the early 2010s about the bankers and the bonuses. There's a reason whenever you had a debate about banking on question time, it was about bank bonuses. All of the polling and the research we've seen for the last decade has shown us it's such a toxic issue for the sector. And certainly from those I've spoken with, there is concern that focusing on such a totemic announcement might be advantageous for the sector, but reputationally, it's hugely damaging. And it risks people who the bankers are at it again, particularly in the middle of a cost of living crisis, when people are so focused on those households that are struggling to pay energy bills, even with significant government intervention, that this will be seen as bankers once again feathering their own nest without a sense that actually this is something that's been proactively offered up by the government. Makes sense from a policy perspective, has the backing of the Bank of England and regulators, but reputationally it feels totally unsaleable. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the call-in powers and there there was quite a lot of confusion around what was actually meant by call-in powers. How would you summarise that? We're yet to see the detail of how they're going to be set forward, which will happen during the committee stage, as it's called. So the next stage of the Financial Services and Markets Bill is when the government will actually table an amendment of its own to its own legislation. But effectively, the call-in powers will provide an opportunity for the government, the Treasury, to review a decision made by a regulator like the PRA or the FCA or the Payment Services Regulator to determine what the broader public policy consequences are and whether actually there are other public policy issues that need to be assessed or considered in reconsidering that issue and opening it up for re-review and potentially opening up for a recommendation for the decision to be changed or altered. Now, how that relates specifically to policy positions or pure supervisory decisions is still to be determined. And I think that's where the real crux of this power will sit. You've obviously highlighted that controversial. Much of that controversy is around those that have concerns that such measures and such calling powers could reduce regulatory independence, which has been a core tenant of the UK system. And one of the reasons the UK system remains globally respected and competitive. But there are many others that say it is possible to design these powers and still protect regulatory independence. And I think one of the reasons that the need for this power has been highlighted is one of the things the Financial Service and Markets Bill does in ensuring and reforming an EU regime into a UK regime is hand significant rulemaking powers and significant future powers to the regulatory authorities. And certainly in the first debate of the bill, which happened in early September, we saw a lot of parliamentary time focused on whether the scrutiny mechanisms on regulatory decisions are sufficient or whether more thought needs to be given to that. Okay, and you mentioned that you expect a regulatory structure review as well to be coming down the track off the back of Liz Truss's comments during her campaign that she thinks that a combined UK regulator could be more effective than the current model. What do you think that would look like? I'm not sure we get necessarily a dramatic outcome for that regulatory structure review, and that's because so much reform has already been planned and scheduled over the last few years, which is the regulatory framework review and the Financial Service and Markets Bill are really a combination of the Khalifa review, the Payments Landscape review, the Austin review, the Lord Hill review, and the Skiok review into ring fencing. But also one of the things that comes out of conversations with the sector is there isn't necessarily appetite 
for such significant change. And that's not to say that the Twin Peaks model is the only model that's correct. It's actually changing the regulatory structure is a huge upheaval for the regulators. And it's a huge upheaval for the sector that's going to dent negatively competitiveness in the short to medium term. We already have a regulatory backlog that is struggling to deal with the licensing of fintechs, payments firms, crypto firms. We regularly hear from firms who are facing six, 18 month delays on their licensing applications. We have a financial conduct authority that is struggling to recruit staff and to retain talent. It would feel like we would be hindering progress in fixing these issues by ripping things up and starting again. So I expect the review will probably fall much closer to a status quo solution. And I do think this could be one of the challenges for the sector in conversations with government. We have a prime minister and a chancellor who appear to want really strong ideas for supply side reforms for the economy and are really keen to understand what they can do now in the short term to improve things. A large message they will hear back from the sector is, actually, there's quite a lot that works very well. We'd like you to tweak these measures here. We think you could make improvements around some of the primary markets reforms or the documents we have to provide to retail investors such as the kid. But I don't think you're going to find many advocating for a full scale review and change in the structure. Okay, particularly when you consider the months that we're about to go into, as you mentioned at the start of this conversation, it's going to be a very challenging economic period. And the last thing we need is a regulator distracted by change. Absolutely. But also the last thing we want are firms distracted by change. And I think one of the things that policymakers often underappreciate is the amount of resource that is put into these multiple reviews and then mandated regulatory change. The figure often discussed in the banking sector was For a large major UK retail bank, 40 to 60% of their innovation budgets could be spent purely implementing mandated regulatory change. Well, that's really interesting. And you've mentioned the financial services markets bill a number of times. What's your view on the package of city reforms proposed by the government in that bill? And is there anything you think is unworkable in practice within that? Anything that you think the government might have missed? I don't think there is much that is unworkable within the framework of the bill. So the bill touches on all the regulatory framework review topics that we've discussed, but it also brings into legislation for the first time the UK digital assets regime. There was any element of the bill that I feel is being potentially under-debated or under-scrutinised right now. It is the fact that the legislation defines digital assets for the first time, i.e. it starts the definition of crypto assets in UK legislation. And specifically, the bill commences the regulation of stablecoins used for payments in the UK, which is a really important development and really important that the UK gets on with starting that process of defining what the regulatory regime should look like. I think there are many that feel the bill could have gone further and actually there is more that the UK needs to do in this space. The EU is already ahead of the UK with its own uh, market and crypto assets proposals. It's not necessarily that they're the right proposals, but they are certainly far more developed and, and being enacted quicker. The bill also brings in a legal obligation for sending payments firms to mandate victims of fraud scams. So this is a requirement that those consumers will get their money back where they're victim of these scams. If the bill was to do more in any of these spaces and go further, there is a sense that it could have focused more on fraud prevention. And there's a lot of focus on ensuring people get their money back, but that's ultimately compensation. It's not measures to focus on fraud prevention and looking at what more could be done. Fraud is now the fastest growing crime by volume and value in the UK, but the legislation remains silent on it. Now, that may well be addressed in a further piece of legislation, a planned second economic crime bill later this year. But I think there is a sense that potentially more could have put in place right now. And then in terms of the only area that's silent, I would potentially echo what many MPs raised in the first debate, which is we're still waiting for the government to finalise its buy now, pay later and 
reform of the Consumer Credit Act. And for me, if there was one area where I would say that it's ripe for a broader UK review and policy debate, it is that our consumer credit laws are still defined by an act set out in the 1970s. That's a piece of legislation that was written when the most appropriate way to communicate with a customer was to send them a letter. And it simply doesn't consider the modern developments we've seen in real-time decisioning, in the way that we look at affordability criteria, in the way that we communicate, and in the way that people can access debt and lending and credit services 24 hours a day on smartphones and online. A more fundamental review of these issues, many would say, needs to happen quicker than is potentially being planned. Okay. And obviously a key sponsor of the Financial Services and Markets Bill was the former City Minister, John Glenn, who has been out of a job for a few months. And Truss has appointed Andrew Griffith as City Minister. She did so in early September. He is a hard act to follow, coming after John Glenn, who was the longest serving City Minister we have ever had. But Griffith has worked at Banking Group Rothschild, Consultancy PwC and Media Group Sky, among other businesses. What do you think his appointment will mean for the post-Brexit reform agenda, particularly those points that you've raised in terms of the aspects of the financial services regulatory agenda that could be addressed? So we've heard a few really interesting priorities coming out of Griffiths in his early meetings with the sector, partly because he comes from a place of knowledge, as you say, his own background and touches on financial services. He therefore already has an existing knowledge of the sector that we haven't always had with all previous city ministers. And what we're seeing is this very traditional first week ask of a a new minister, which is to the sector, give me your quick wins. What is it you need me to change? What needs to happen in order for the government to be able to facilitate and enable growth? So there seems to be this strong desire coming out of the new city minister to have those answers coming in. And I suspect he's getting a lot of pressure around things like the corporation tax surcharge, but also probably a very strong message from the sector, which is continue with the financial service and markets bill. It's taken years to get here. And actually one of the most important things you can do, it may not sound groundbreaking is ensure the implementation and passage of that legislation swiftly and that then what comes next in the secondary regulation happens swiftly but hopefully there will also be a a realization that there are areas and measures that could be taken further what i think is quite interesting are the two additional areas we've seen the new city minister want to focus on one is on digital assets and a real sense that he understands the importance of addressing the uk's approach to digital assets i.e all things crypto very swiftly and not just stopping it where we've got to in the financial service and markets bill And also a sense early on that he seems very focused on open banking. Now, open banking obviously was originally this solution to a competition inquiry into retail banking, and which saw the UK start to open up consumer data so that it could be used through an open data API to enable other fintechs and providers to build solutions. And I think it's fair to say after a shaky start, open banking has shown to be incredibly valuable to UK SMEs and UK consumers who've benefited from it. But the progress in the next round of development has Many in the sector felt like it's stalled over the last 12 to 18 months. And what we're hearing from the new city minister early on is a desire to actually get open banking reprioritized and really try and unleash some of the innovation and possibilities that you can have from evolving and expanding open banking further. So hopefully these things will align and what we'll see is a continuation of the FSMB, that legislation going through parliament, but a desire to maybe pick up the pace on some of the other issues that are critical, but have been paused as we complete the regulatory framework review. And we've had a treasury obviously with bandwidth limited by both Brexit and COVID. And obviously, as I mentioned, John Glenn was the longest serving city minister prior to Griffith. And prior to Glenn, there were a series of city ministers who were in the role for a short period of time, some of which used it as a jumping ground for career progression. Do you have a sense 
at this early stage of Griffith's tenure in the role as to his commitment to that role? There has been huge frustration in this exit about the number of city ministers we had for four to five months maximum before we had John Glenn for a number of years. And I think that does create a problem. Obviously, any junior role within Treasury is viewed as a great stepping stone for future career development within politics. But ultimately, these agendas drive forward over a medium term timeline. You can achieve very little in a matter of months. And actually, if we're going to have progress here and the government is going to back up its claims that it wants to drive forward growth from the city, it wants to recognise the jewel in the crown that is UK financial services. It needs to back that up with a minister that is willing to remain in post that they committed to driving forward that agenda. And so perhaps it's out of his gift to decide how long the tenure will be, but hopefully the message from number 10 and number 11 will be backed up with that kind of action and commitment to the position. Okay. You've mentioned the Financial Conduct Authority, the UK's markets regulators, struggles to retain talent and address regulatory change. But obviously, you've also mentioned that there is a large responsibility now on UK regulators to deal with an increased workload arising from Brexit and the regulatory changes that are are coming off the back of that. And obviously, that workload comes as we face a recession, a cost of living crisis, when that's still navigating the aftermath of the pandemic, to name a few upcoming challenges. How prepared do you think the FCA and other UK regulators are for all that's coming down the track? One of the things I would potentially argue that needs to be considered and often isn't considered is whether there can be regulatory pause or a change in the number of issues and the number of topics that regulators are trying to address, both for the benefit of the authorities, but also firms themselves as well. We have in the UK in financial services what's called the Regulatory Initiatives Grid. It's effectively meant to be an air traffic control programme that all the regulators come together and publish twice a year that sets out the future agenda. And at the start of the pandemic, the FCA, the PRA, were very quick to recalibrate some of those priorities and say, actually, we're going to downgrade this because we're going to need to focus on these immediate priorities. But then... After those initial six to nine months, what we saw is all of those issues came straight back online. There was no point where everyone stopped and said, actually, are these still the right medium term, short term priorities? Or has the world moved on in a way that means we need to change what we're doing here? And I do think there is probably the case for a more fundamental review of regulatory priorities right now. Because we've had the pandemic, we've had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have the current cost of living crisis, yet we seem to be just making an additive regulatory agenda and an additive suite of priorities and not stepping back and saying, well, actually, does this still apply or should we be reprioritizing and moving your agenda on more broadly? So there needs to be the ability for regulators to have a more honest conversation and less of a sense that they can only ever add to their workload. Nothing can ever come off the list. Who would lead that regulatory pause, as you put it? Who would need to drive that? So the Regulatory Initiatives Grid sits under a coordinating council of all of the regulators who come together, the Regulatory Initiatives Forum. And I think that forum needs to be empowered, both with political backing and Treasury backing, to be able to have that conversation. But I'd also like to see some of that pressure coming from the Treasury Select Committee. The Treasury Select Committee has an incredibly powerful soapbox to bring forward regulators, but I'm not sure it often gives the opportunity to consider whether they need to reprioritise or change priorities. It always seems to be that they're expected to add to that list. So I think there would have to be enough political backing to enable authorities to feel that they could have that conversation. Okay, so you think if that were to take place, the FCA would be well equipped to handle everything that's coming, given the issues that you've raised about the FCA, and and you're certainly not alone in raising concerns about the FCA's ability to retain talent and deal with its to-do list currently. I think like many public sector authorities right now, that will be a a significant challenge. We've got civil servants, officials and regulators who've now worked seamlessly and endlessly through three fairly major policy crises with no break in between them. And just as in banks, we need to talk about burnout concerns and the health and well-being of colleagues. I think we need to be able to have that conversation. The FCA needs to be able to have that conversation with its own workforce. 
without it being forever written up as the beleaguered financial conduct authority. And so I do think there are challenges about whether the FCA has enough resource in terms of its staffing requirements and being able to recruit the talent that it needs. But that's a broader challenge across the sector right now in terms of whether we have the talent and headcount available. There doesn't seem to be an immediate short-term fix. We have obviously a new chair coming into the FCA at the end of this year, and I'm sure it's going to be a fairly major priority for them as they take on the role and think about where to prioritise some of those resources. Okay. So what's your view of the new chair coming in for the FCA? That's Ashley Alder, who used to run the Hong Kong regulator. Do you think he'll drive much change at the FCA? I think it's a really interesting appointment that firstly reminds us that the UK is a global financial services centre and a well-respected, highly thought of financial services centre, and that we can bring in significant global talent like this is a very good sign for the UK authorities. And it's something that previous governments have sought to do, but haven't always been able to identify the right candidate or the right candidate with the availability to move so that we've managed to line those things up. So this works is a great signal that the UK is not just successful domestically, but outward facing as well. And I hope what the role signifies is an appetite and a desire to continue working at the global regulatory stage and the global standard setting stage as well. One of the things that Alder has been very active in is around some of those multilateral standard setting fora. And as we've left the European Union, the UK now participates directly in those institutions. And it's really important that we continue, particularly around sustainable finance, but also many of the questions around digital finance and emerging global regulatory issues around cyber, that the UK is at the top table seeking to influence that agenda and help shape global standards. So hopefully this signifies appetite and willingness to do that. Mm-hmm. But the FCA is part funded by the government and also fees charged the industry. It's been mentioned on this podcast in relation to the FCA's struggles to deal with all the changes that are happening in the UK at the moment and retain talent through that, that a increase in fees charged the industry would be useful, but also increase in government funding would be very helpful. Do you think either of those two things are likely? It's hard to see how you see either of those things being likely in the short to medium term. The FCA is one of the most well-funded regulators, if not the best funded regulator in the UK from an industry levy perspective compared to other sectors. But also, I think there's still a, a conversation and debate to be had to think about how the FCA levy on the industry is funded and addressed and whether it is operating the right way, whether it operates in a way that is fair to smaller firms, to well-regulated firms, whether it takes into account some of the other funding obligations that sit on the sector for things like the financial services compensation scheme and other protection measures. So it is hard to see a case for it significantly increasing beyond the existing levels that it's set at now. And given public sector finances, I doubt it's going to be top of the list for further funding from the government, which does mean the question has to come back to how do you rescale or rescope the focus for the conduct authority at the moment i think for me one of the broader conversations is actually about the question of dual regulation and co-regulation one of the emerging issues we saw initially with the way the government was thinking about stablecoin regulation but increasingly with we've got this huge payments consultation out at the moment which was launched by the treasury at the start of the summer which is looking at the regulatory perimeter for payments and systemic payments firms and the idea of when is a payments firm potentially a systemic risk to the UK economy. And at the moment, we have nine firms designated, and this is the ability to expand the regime so that any firm in the payments chain, and as we move to an increasingly digital payments chain, could potentially be systemic and therefore should be designated as systemic and then be dual regulated. And I think what that conversation does, but also the conversation about the dual regulation of stablecoin providers does, is highlight the changing nature of financial services, which changes the way that we regulate firms. It's harder to say, 
that's a bank, that's a payments company, that's a credit card provider. And never do the firms mix or overlap in their offering to services or their conduct obligations or regulatory rules. And I think increasingly, the more and more providers start to look and feel the same, with the exception of deposit taking powers, the harder it is to have clear lines between what is regulated by the PRA, what is regulated by the FCA. And more and more firms will find themselves moving into a dual regulatory or co-regulatory regime. And I think at the moment it is happening as and when the issues arise. And there is probably a broader conversation to be had about where we do draw the lines, what that should look like over the medium to long term. And that probably aligns with the work and the conversations we need to have around what does a, a regulatory environment for a modern future digital economy look like? Because we've still got to get to grips with crypto regulation, but also as we move to Web 3.0 and Metaverse and you think about all of the potential payments transactions or everyday business transactions and activity that can happen in that space, are we starting to think about what that future regulatory regime needs to look like and how we get there? And obviously, when you mention dual regulation, you mean a firm is regulated by the Prudential Regulation Authority alongside the FCA. So they have two regulators to answer to. But I'd be interested to know whether you think there are any flaws within that dual regulation structure, because it's also been mentioned on this podcast that there have been a number of examples in recent months and years of dual regulated firms having a regulatory issue. And it's become clear that the PRA and the FCA aren't talking to each other as they should. So I think very much to that point, what we get in this consultation is an attempt by the Treasury to start defining what dual regulation looks like. And we get it in the explanatory notes to the Financial Service and Markets Bill as well. So that is the idea of what the communication channels look like. How do we get clarity around the remit? How do they share information? I think we need to see where those final rules get to and what they start to look like in practice, but also there needs to be an argument that we may not get this right the first time around and we need to move pretty quickly to clarify that and provide firms clarity and a reworked approach if it becomes apparent it's not workable in practice because it is difficult for a firm to be dual regulated if there isn't clarity over where the remits sit, where they're meant to be providing information and reporting or seeking guidance from. And if the UK builds a reputation for those kind of inconsistencies, that will damage our broader global standing and competitiveness. So I'd like to hope that we see a real agility around both the implementation of those measures and then assessing whether they're effective and we got them right. Okay. And as you mentioned at the start of this conversation, your role is in a large part explaining regulatory changes to your clients and advising them on the areas that could be changed, that could be addressed with lawmakers. What tips do you have for city executives looking to shape the post-Brexit regulatory agenda for UK financial services firms? Are there any common mistakes that you see being made there? For me, there is one overarching challenge, which is I feel as a sector, we have talked about competitiveness and the competitiveness of the UK in the same terms for the best part of a decade now. And we focus on jobs, taxation, and then a desire to see broader regulatory reform. And as an industry, we need to get better at responding to the direct political challenges and the political conversation that is in front of us. But I also think post-Brexit, there is an argument for stepping back and considering what does a competitive UK look like now in a post-EU environment, in an environment where arguably new parts of the sector are where we need to be focusing our attention, whether that's in, in digital, how we think about climate and sustainability in this case, but also how we think about some of the broader long-term global policy agendas we want to see addressed. Because I think it's too easy to revert back to some of those very traditional asks, which can be important. But if you are a politician or a government or a policymaker, you probably don't need to hear from the financial services sector a desire for the bank levy to be reduced as much as you are seeking 
new policy ideas and new understandings of the way the market's operating at present. And as a sector, we still struggle with how to communicate the latest technology developments and market developments to policymakers in a way that they can appreciate the opportunities for the UK and the potential benefits of building the right environment for them. We're so used to talking to ourselves that we don't necessarily think about how we communicate that to policymakers in a way that they can then communicate to the public. So it's a case of thinking less about what changes might directly benefit the industry and more broadly about what trends or challenges the industry should move quickly to address and communicating that to lawmakers. I think so, yes. Ultimately, for policymakers, you are going to need solutions that resonate and cut through with voters, but also you can plug into your existing policy regimes that right now that's going to be a focus on growth. And I think if we are looking at engagement with government, one question we should all be asking ourselves is, if I'm asking for A, how does it deliver the government's objective of B? And can I show the evidence base to get there? Mm-hmm. One recurring criticism I've heard of the previous government's post-Brexit regulatory agenda has been that a lot of very exciting things have been proposed or ambitious things, and there's been no follow-through. What's your view on that? There was a mismatch in expectations. So when the Treasury started its post-Brexit review, the Treasury was very clear internally it was working on a five-year-plus agenda. I think if you spoke to the sector at that time, they're like, great, let's get these changes implemented in the next 18 months. And that mismatch in expectations from the start has created a a fair amount of frustration in how things have developed and progressed. And the financial services markets bill is a really important staging point in addressing some of that frustration. When it comes to fintech, yes, there is still a disconnect between some of the changes that are needed and some of the funding that is needed to build those initiatives and where the agenda is. I think we've seen some progress towards the latter part of the summer, but there is definitely more to be done. And I would say we already need to be starting now on what the next review needs to be looking at and how we get there. Because what we don't want to do is wait for another two years and then launch the next review into what we should be doing on digital markets and digital assets, because that will be too late. We should already be asking now What comes next after we've built the digital asset sandbox? How do we ensure the UK stays on the front foot? And waiting for some of these debates to be determined in the US and the EU isn't going to put the UK on the front foot. One of the challenges we hear around digital assets from government is they are still understanding the market and the developments and the expertise. That is something the private sector has. So actually, why can't we better harness that and see the sector and the government and policymakers working in more of a partnership model to identify and define a strategy and then work together to deliver it. So let's have fewer of these set piece reviews and more longer term relationships where the public and the private sector are working together to deliver something. Does a focus on the digital asset space leave the FCA in a bit of a quandary in terms of its priorities? Because on the one side, it's got consumer protection to focus on and it's made very clear that that is a very strong priority at the moment on the other side it's been given this new competition priority and so looking at crypto firms we've had quite a few fairly public blow-ups in recent months which should and i'm sure are a concern to the fca in terms of consumer protection point of view but in terms of competition point of view you want to embrace these firms they're very footloose they're happy to go wherever and you want them to come here so how can they balance that in your view so i think this is the very reason we need to have a more fundamental strategic conversation because what we have at the moment are competing messages coming out of the authorities around 
concerns around crypto assets and a desire to keep them outside the regulated perimeter at the same time as we're building regulatory obligations around financial promotion rules, around AML rules, money laundering licensing requirements. And we have a huge number of crypto firms still waiting to get their FCA authorization. And that's putting a chilling effect on the market that's damaging competitiveness and potentially not aiding consumer protection either. But that's also looking at one very small subset of the market. And this is part of the challenge in the digital assets conversation, which is we need a clear strategy around crypto assets and cryptocurrencies. We need a clear strategy around stablecoin, a clear strategy around central bank digital currencies, but also thinking about NFTs and then the use cases for each of these technologies as well, the way in which we see them being utilized in the payments sector or how we see them being utilized in the wholesale and financial markets infrastructure basis. And I fear that when we have the digital assets conversation in the UK at the moment, it's always dominated by cryptocurrencies because that's what we all read about in the media. It's what we hear about in terms of market concerns. And actually, that means that we're not having a broader conversation. It requires a, a holistic and structured and strategic approach to this. And while I completely appreciate policymakers and regulators have had so much of their capacity squashed by post-Brexit reforms, pandemic reforms, and now cost of living, if we leave this debate unaddressed and keep pushing it into the long grass, we'll end up running to catch up with it and having to make very swift post-event reforms to deal with the consumer protection problems that have arisen rather than building the right framework in the first place. Okay. And generally, is there an upcoming or current challenge that you believe not enough people are paying attention to right now? I still think there's a more fundamental conversation to be had about fraud prevention in the UK. We've had an economic crime strategy running now for two years. We're due to have a new economic crime strategy. We're due to have potentially a new fraud strategy. But this is a problem that sits not just in the financial services sector, but more broadly, it impacts the way that we undertake retail, the way that we undertake broader digital online engagement. And I feel at the moment it's an add-on to other policy conversations, but not a cross-government, cross-policymaker laser focus on what can be done to address this issue. And I think that will continue to be a challenge. Our policing and our crime structures are focused on physical crime and less on digital crime. But yet we still see the crime figures that show that this is the, the growing issue and growing concern. So for me, that's where I'd like to see more focus. So if you had to list top three areas of change that we'd like to be see implemented to properly focus on fraud prevention, what would those be? There is an argument to be made for a single minister with responsibility for fraud in this space because it is one of those issues that cuts across so many government departments and often gets lost in that across Whitehall approach. A proper five-year-plus fraud strategy that really focused, much like the previous government's drug strategy, on putting in place a very holistic suite of solutions on providing clarity of ownership, responsibility and reforms and ultimately probably funding. We have a National Economic Crime Command Centre that is arguably underfunded compared to some of its international competitors. And at the end of the day, we often lack the funding to pursue enforcement cases against criminals undertaking this activity and the organised crime grants that sit behind it. And there's certainly appetite in the industry to see further work in this space and increasingly in other sectors as the harms being identified grow in a sense that we need to find a way to build up the public sector and combined industry public sector response to what is effectively a business operation from the minds of criminals because it's an incredibly lucrative line of work for them. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you very much. And there's been a lot of food for thought in this conversation today, Becca. I'd love to get you back at a future date to see how many of your concerns have been heeded and how many of your changes that you suggest have been adopted. But in the meantime, just thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.